BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. All right, welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as always by Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we've got a special guest, ESPN play-by-play voice Dave Pash will be joining us. In fact, we actually just finished our interview with him. The magic of editing is such that this portion will come before the interview plays, but we actually did just uh, uh, finish our interview with him. So that should be enjoyable. But before we get to that, let's start with the usual breakdown of the weekend stories. We'll start with the ratings for the NFL. Not particularly strong in week 10. Very weak national window as the Cowboys took on the Giants. 21, I mean, weak is all relative, right? 21.7 million viewers is the kind of number that Rob Manfred or Adam Silver might literally do backflips for. Uh, But in the NFL, it's the least watched national window since week one, which really means it's the least watched national window of the season because we know Week one, you have the cannibalization of CBS and Fox. So not the kind of number you want, but that's what you get when you put the Giants on TV. The Giants fooled a lot of people last year with their playoff run and as such got way more national games this season than they deserved. And they are making the networks pay every single time. So uh, 21.7 million, the smallest audience for the national window, that 425 p.m. window this season not in, you know, not counting week one, yada, yada. You know, the, if you are listening to this podcast, you know, the story week one, they air two doubleheaders against each other and neither does well. Sunday night football, also the lowest of the season. No caveats there. Jets, Raiders, those New York teams, you know, there is a perception that New York teams are inherently good for ratings. That's not true. The Giants and Jets definitely aren't. The Yankees played in the least-watched World Series ever in 1998, and then played in the least-watched World Series ever again in 2000. Like, the Yankees are not some kind of automatic draw. The Knicks played in NBA Finals in 94 and 99, where the viewership was down significantly from the previous year. Granted, the previous year in both cases involved Jordan and the Bulls, but those were just objectively weak finals that the Knicks were in by the standard of that time. So, New York teams, it's the number one market in the country, but you're not guaranteed great ratings because New York is there. And I'll tell you, I can guarantee you Fox wanted the Red Sox in that World Series in 03. I can guarantee you that. Uh, But I'm getting off on a pretty serious tangent here going into the the LCS from 20 years ago. But just to reiterate the point, um, I, I think there is a perception that New York teams are automatic from a ratings perspective, and they're just not. They're not. 
and, and the Giants and Jets need to be off of the TV schedule as much as possible the rest of the way. John, are you surprised that we haven't seen any flexed games yet this season? And we, you know, I mean, I think today is the day they've had to announce for week 13. Um, and we have not gotten any flex uh, yeah. as of uh, this evening, 645 Eastern time as we're recording this. Well, my understanding is that there was a change with the new media rights deal, and I cannot remember off the top of my head where I read this. Otherwise, I'd give credit. Uh, I think it might have been Mike Florio. Maybe it was John Arand. I have no clue. But my understanding is that CBS and Fox can now protect a game a week, which is not the way that it was before. So if CBS and Fox are both protecting a game a week, and so you're already down two good games, you're picking at best a third best game of the week, you're going to be very limited in what you can do. Now, I will say there are a couple of obvious flex choices coming up in the next few weeks, right? So let's start with, you said week 13. Um, that's actually a pretty good week. You're not taking Chiefs Packers or, or Bengals Jaguars down, but week 14, um, I think you could look at for... Um, for ABC, they've got Packers Giants that week. I don't want to see the New York Giants on Monday Night Football. Uh, Seahawks 49ers is also that week. It's a 4.05 p.m. single header game on Fox. Now, it may very well be protected because if Fox and CBS can protect a game every week, obviously, even in the single header weeks, a game is going to be protected. But I would assume that there's a better chance of a single header game not being protected. And that would be a great pick, Seahawks 49ers, to get Packers-Giants off the year on uh, December 11th. The better week is coming up in week, uh, week 15. Right now, ABC and ESPN have Chiefs-Patriots on Monday Night Football. Patriots are awful. That same week, the Eagles and Seahawks are playing in the secondary game of the national window. Fox has Cowboys-Bills. Cowboys Bills is going to 99.9% .9 of the country, no matter what. So you're going to have the Eagles and Seahawks going to a very small percentage of the country. The whole point of the flex was never to give prime time better games. It was to give better exposure to some of those regional games. And Eagles Seahawks is the obvious case. That game should be one that goes to most of the country. So uh, Chiefs-Patriots, to me, is not a great game. NBC's not flexing out Ravens-Dag Wars. That's a really good game. Chiefs-Patriots, take that out, put Eagles-Seahawks instead. You never want to drop a Chiefs game. But if you have to drop a Chiefs game, better to do it when you have the Eagles coming in. And, of course, you can always flex the Chiefs in at a later week. Uh, I do want to quickly correct. Th today would be the deadline for a Week 12 flex, not okay. a Week 13 flex. So obviously, if you're going to lose a Chiefs game, you'd want to add one. And the only opportunity to do that is in week 12. Chiefs Raiders is going to be the secondary game of the national window that week. Most of the country is going to get Bills Eagles, no doubt. So obviously, it's Kansas City versus a 500 Raiders team. That's not a bad matchup. And right now, the Monday Night Football game would be Bears Vikings. The Vikings are getting really good. The Bears are never getting good. So Obviously, if I were making the decision, I'd flex out Bears Vikings for Chiefs Raiders in week 12, and that would allow me to flex out Chiefs Patriots in favor 
of Eagle Seahawks in week 15. Now, if that is going to happen, we're going to need to know as soon as tomorrow, because as Drew has told me, the deadline for the week 12 flex is Wednesday. So by the time this podcast comes out Wednesday morning, we'll know whether or not uh, ESPN and ABC are fortunate enough to have that flex done. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, am I surprised there's been no flexing so far? You know, yeah, not really. I, I think it is what it is. Uh, it's a more difficult bar, especially with so many flex opportunities. And the NFL's preference is to just keep games as they are and, and not to inconvenience the fans. I mean, they don't really care if they inconvenience the fans, but I think they prefer not to. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I think going into this season, considering they expanded the flex to Thursday nights, they expanded Monday night flex. Um, you know, I think fans thought the schedule was pretty much going to be in flux after week 12 and, and beyond, right? So the fact that they haven't decided to flex anything so far yeah. um, is pretty surprising. But like you said, if the networks and the networks being CBS and Fox are able to protect one game a week, that really limits the options, especially when you add in the you know Frankfurt games and then a Black yeah. Friday game. There's really just not much to pick from. Yeah, yeah. Well, because we do have our interview with Dave Pash and we don't want this to be a two-hour podcast, we're going to go quickly through the other topics. Uh, Michigan, their drama is kind of ridiculous, very melodramatic. Uh, you know, on the show Little House on the Prairie in some of the early seasons, you can see that in order to make Melissa Gilbert, who played Laura Ingalls, cry, they would put these big, giant, gelatinous tears on her face that would never move. they just stay there for the whole scene. The reason I bring this up is the assistant coach of Michigan. Just, I don't really understand the level of emotion. Um, you know, should, should we play that clip? Yeah, we can play it. Why not? That's actually a good idea. Let's, let's play that. To win on the road in this environment when there were doubts. Jerome, what does it mean to you? Well, I thank the Lord. Well, I thank Coach Harbaugh. I love you, man. Love the out of you, man. This is for you. For this university, the president, our AD. We got the best players, best university, best alumni in the country. Love you guys. These guys right here. These guys right here, man. These guys did it. These guys did it, man. Talk to him, man. Love you. Thank you, coach. A lot of melodrama at Michigan. Uh, did it help the ratings? Apparently, because that game against Michigan State, or excuse me, that game against Penn State, which would have done well no matter what, over 9 million, the sixth game this season with over 9 million viewers. And this season, there have been more games with at least 7 million than at any point in the past decade. You want to know how I know? I went through every single uh, page on my college football ratings page and counted all the games with 7 or more million viewers. So when you see that stat repeated on deadline, know that I did the work of actually sifting through that data with my eyes. But I digress. Uh, but yes, uh, a whopping 16 games this season with more than 7 million viewers, and that is better than any year in the past decade. So hash this out for me a little bit, John. How much of that is courtesy of Colorado and Deion Sanders? And then how much of that is because of measuring out-of-home viewing? Out-of-home is a bigger factor. You got to remember, Deion and the, and the Buffaloes, that's a five-game story. It was big to start the season, but we're talking about five games. There's 16 that have had 7 million viewers. So that's 11 other games. 
that's still more than you would get in a typical season. So I think this is uh it's just a big year for college football and out of home is playing a role in everything, right? Who knows how bad all these numbers would look. Can you imagine what those world series numbers would look like if you took out out of home viewing? <laughs> Holy smokes. And not this much worse because 10% of uh, <laughs> that viewership isn't that, that much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, out of home was there as far back as the bubble. So as far back as like Lakers heat in the bubble, as bad as it was, had out of home viewing contributing to it, but it was the COVID era. So that out of home viewing is still not that much. Considering what out of home viewing must be now, and I haven't seen a good breakout percentage in a while, but considering what out of home viewing must be now, I really do wonder like how low those World Series numbers would be if you took that out. But uh, that's a digression for another time. We do want to get through more ratings here. Let's talk about the NBA in season tournament. Uh, very strong start. Mm, I don't know. It's. It's a strong start unless you really, really look. Actually, let me rephrase. It's a very good start, but the numbers the NBA puts out, which are accurate, are a little misleading. So, up 55% from the equivalent doubleheaders last year is true. The first four in season tournament games, up 55%. But two of those games last year were opposite the World Series. One of those games, opposite the World Series, was Pacers-Wizards. I mean, those were not good teams last year, just in case you weren't following the NBA. Uh, and so I, I do think that you're comparing high-profile games. Like, for example, this past Friday, Lakers-Suns did great. Tremendous number. Last year's comparable game, Bucks-Timberwolves. That wasn't going to get a great number. The NBA is putting higher-profile games into these in-season tournament windows so far. This Friday will be a very good test. Tonight, Tuesday night, there are in-season tournament games on TNT for the first time. Uh, Spurs, Thunder, you know, Wembenyama, that's a marquee game. Clippers, Nuggets, marquee-ish, you know. But when you get to Friday is when you actually have, like, kind of downer, regular, uninteresting, regular season fare in the in-season tournament. King Spurs, Wemby, yes. Yes, Wemby. But then Suns, Jazz. The Jazz aren't even good this year. This isn't like last year when they came out like gangbusters. So I think you'll see the numbers obviously won't be the same for that as they were for Suns Lakers. But you'll see that, you know, maybe some of what we've seen with the in-season tournament thus far in terms of that big increase in viewership has to do with the quality of the games that they put on there. Let's um let's take a look at another in-season tournament storyline, which was reported by Sports Business Journal on Monday. And that is that Netflix has shown, quote, some interest in acquiring the rights to the NBA in-season tournament. Um, this is kind of a departure from Netflix's live sports strategy of the last few years where they may have, uh, you know, kind of inquired, may have kicked the tires on certain things, but never shown serious interest other than actually submitting a bid for F1. But um, the reports say that bid was pretty uncompetitive. So. Um, as these new NBA deals come up and as the exclusive negotiating windows end uh, in 2024 with the incumbents, how much of a player do you expect Netflix to be for an in-season tournament package? Well, you know, Sports Business Journal reported this. Sports Business Journal reports on sports business exclusively 
and has been doing this particular, you know, aspect of it in terms of rights deals for a long time. And they're not just going to throw stuff at the wall and say, hey, click on this, guys. I take it more seriously coming from John Oran than I would from Dylan Byers, right? No offense to Dylan Byers, but it's true. And so for me, I don't believe it. But since John Oran took the time to write it, I tend to believe there must be some smoke surrounding it. That's interesting. And um, I didn't expect to have Dylan Byers catch any uh, any strays on this podcast today. But um, it what you say is is true, though, to an extent, right? I mean, this is the bread and butter of Sports Business Journal. They, they don't report on things that don't have at least some smoke. But this would be an interesting pickup for Netflix. This would be an interesting way to dive into live sports, I think. So here, here's the thing. Netflix is in a pretty advantageous position compared to most of the other streamers, right? If you look at the data, you know, subscriber data, minutes watched, that type of thing, Netflix is far and away the most popular streaming service. So sports is not something that needs to be core to their strategy, at least at this point in time. That being said, I, I'm interested if this is a kind of like we've seen with Apple's baseball package, where it's kind of just a getting their toes wet um, type of thing, just getting their sports, live sports department up and running, maybe giving them some real games of consequence where they can actually, uh, you know, get their production down, their live streaming down, and then they take a bigger step in the future. Um, because to me, the in-season tournament package, I mean, it can't be all that valuable just not at face value. Well, I think it's valuable if you don't want to spend a lot of money, but you do want to get important NBA games. It's a gamble because we don't know if people will find the in-season tournament important, but so far, except for the stupid courts, and I don't use the word stupid lightly. Those are incredibly stupid courts. Except for that, I think the basketball has been pretty good. I think the players have given some indication that they that they do feel a little bit more intensity. I think this could work. I think this could work. Now, if you just want to spend a little bit of money, get your foot in the door on the NBA and have games that matter, it's actually the perfect relationship. Nobody needs, except for maybe, you know, a, unless you're trying to build something new, I don't think you need weekly inventory all season long. If you're just trying to, you know, maybe dip a toe, right? This is perfectly fine. Apple might need something weekly, although I don't even think so at this point. I don't even think Amazon really does. The, the ones who need something weekly are ESPN and Turner, the cable networks. They need the weekly inventory, I think. But uh, for Netflix, this would be an interesting move. They've failed, obviously, on live programming before. I don't know, what was it, Love is Blind? I have no mm -hmm. idea what that is. But I think as we speak, they have the Netflix Cup right now, um, which is, is the... This is um, the mashup of professional golfers and F1 drivers uh, playing a match play sort of style golf tournament um, today. Hmm. <laughs> that is that is currently ongoing. So if you want, you hmm. can go check out um, <laughs> if Netflix has actually gotten their live stream up. I haven't had Netflix in like three years, although I did stay at an Airbnb where someone was logged into Netflix. I hope it was the house owner. Not a previous uh, resident, not a previous guest, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see what they do. Again, I only believe there's any any reality to this because of the publication that reported it. And even with that, I don't know. I think there's a 10% chance of this happening. I, I just don't see it being that realistic. I do think selling the in-season tournament as a separate property is something the NBA wants to do. They need to sell as many packages as they can because I don't think any one partner is going to want to pay the kind of money the NBA necessarily is going to need to get. So they need to, this is going back to that front office sports report, five packages, as many as five partners, the NBA, Hey, they might need six, you know, why stop at five uh, and, and sell everything you can to as many people as you can. And if you look like the WNBA, which has partnerships with 15 different networks, Hey, as long as you're getting the money, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You might've sold me on this actually being the perfect package for Amazon. And, and Hey, you know, the, the NWSL has like 18 partners now as well in their new deal. Yeah. So I was actually thinking about the NWSL. I mean, look, this is all stuff that small leagues do, except the NFL does it too. The NFL has five partners, not even including NFL network. And so, you know, it, it is interesting because when you think about, oh man, that many partners, wow, you guys must be desperate. The NFL has five partners. Nobody thinks the NFL is desperate. So, you know, for the NBA, I mean, I meant what I said. If they have to go to six, they have to go to six. You can't go out and float to CNBC that you want $75 billion and then not get $75 billion, all right? You, I mean, you just can't do that. I don't know who it was at the NBA who floated that completely unnecessary number. Uh, but if you want to get that kind of that kind of money, if you're going to set that expectation, not only with your detractors, but also with your employees and your players who are expecting that kind of windfall, you got to do what you got to do. And if that means, hey, we're going to sell the first round of the playoffs as a separate package, you know, we're going to, I mean, like whatever you have to do to ensure that you're getting at least within range of that 75 billion is, is what you have to do. All right, that's all the ratings talk for this week. Now it's time for the main event. Our special guest, Dave Pash of ESPN. We caught up with him earlier today as he was headed to the airport to call Wednesday's Kings-Lakers game for ESPN. All right, well, we're very happy to be joined this week by the great Dave Pash of ESPN, also the voice of the Arizona Cardinals, who right now, as we're speaking to him, is en route to the airport to call tomorrow night. We're taping Tuesday evening. Tomorrow night's uh, Lakers playing the, playing the Sacramento Kings tomorrow night. Uh, he'll be working that game with Doc Rivers, one of the topics we'll be addressing as we uh, bring in Dave. And uh, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Really appreciate it. Uh, how is the uh, season treating you so far, doing the NFL, NBA, and college football all at the same time? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Uh, the season's been great. We've had a great uh, college football schedule. I've done a couple of NBA games so far. Uh, the Cardinals, uh, things are looking up with Kyler back, which is nice. And, um, you know, I'm starting to break out a little bit, I've noticed lately, um, because I, I know that Bill Walton's season is right around the corner. It's usually about this time of year I start to itch a little bit more. My skin starts to break out. It usually is just a sign that we're getting closer to, to Bill time. Well, a lot to talk about with the Walton aspect, of course. But why don't we start with a new partner? Uh, you'll be working with Doc Rivers tomorrow, and to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong here, this will be the first time that you're working with Doc. Uh, 
what kind of experience is that working with an analyst for the first time? Well, there's two different kinds of first-time analysts. Uh, so my first two NBA games this year were with Bob Myers. And Bob, you know, had not done TV uh, color before. He actually did a UCLA radio color some 20 years ago with uh, the late Chris Roberts. So he had done it, but, you know, I had not done it on television and obviously not at ESPN. So, you know, that's one type of newbie. And then you have somebody like Doc, who I have not worked with before, but, you know, obviously Doc, you know, did, you know, high-level NBA games on network television for a long time. So it's just for him kind of flipping that switch, getting back into that uh, space where with Bob, it, you know, it's a whole new thing. I was incredibly impressed with Bob and how quickly he picked things up. I mean, he, he's going to be a star if he keeps doing this. And what I've watched from Doc so far, remembering back to when, you know, he did games, uh, it doesn't feel like, you know, he's been coaching for the last 15 years. Just feel like, you know, he'd been continuing to broadcast. But, you know, Doc's such a great speaker, such a good guy and personable. So I'm not surprised. And obviously I covered Doc, whether it was with the Celtics, uh, the Clippers, Philadelphia. So I've covered a lot of Doc's games over the last 18, 19 years doing NBA for ESPN. So looking looking forward to getting a chance to to work with them on a, on a game broadcast. And what is that experience like bringing in different analysts over the course of the year? You'll obviously work with Hubie Brown at varying points in the year. As you mentioned, Bob Myers, and then obviously Walton on college basketball and, and all of your various partners in college football and the NFL. Do you ever have to adjust your style around the analyst or is it, you know, consistent across the board? It's a little bit of an adjustment. I think, you know, going from, you brought up Hubie. So if, you know, going one night from doing a game with Hubie to the next night doing a game with Bill, my approach, my preparation, what I may say on the air is going to be different. And obviously you're doing NBA and then doing college. So you got two different games, but it is different. Uh, you adjust. The, the whole point is, and I've always felt this way, the game is the star and our job is to serve the viewer. And my job along with that is to get the most out of the analyst, to put the analyst in the best place for him or for her to succeed. And so I need to know their strengths. I need to know where they want to go, maybe where they don't want to go, um, what, what they're comfortable with. And some of that is a feeling out process when you haven't worked with somebody before enjoy that I'm, that's the best part of this job is the people that you get to work with that you get to know and spend time with and build relationships and chemistry with because it is a team you grow you know close and have personal friendships and relationships with the people you work with so um you know i hear stories all the time of you know you hear this person didn't like working with so-and-so or you know maybe it's a current broadcast team where the analyst and the play-by-play -play guy don't get along they don't like each other that man i'd be miserable that would be that would be hell for me <laughs> uh, to not have somebody that you get along with. Um, not saying that you have to be best friends with everybody you work with, but man, it's sure, you know, when you're on the road away from your family, if you don't like who you're working with and you can't make it work, then that's really one of the unfortunate things about our, our business. But, you know, most people that, you know, I know that are play by play announcers, their goal is to build that rapport and relationship with the analyst and, and get the most out of that person so that you're, you're best serving the viewer. Dave, uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, your games with Bob Myers so far this season. I mean, um, you know, Myers has been kind of a bit of an experiment uh, 
in the television world. You don't really see too many people coming from the front office side um, and, and starting work on television, especially uh, in a game broadcast setting. So how has that been uh, working with Bob these last couple games? Outstanding. The first game we did was a preseason game, which I thought would be a little bit easier for Bob because easier in the sense that while it was his first television broadcast as an analyst, preseason, you're doing a little bit more big picture, a little bit more storytelling. Our first game was Lakers Clippers, and it was an overtime game where LeBron and Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Anthony Davis all played 35, 40 minutes and all had incredible games. And it was an easy adjustment for him, you know, to go from a lot of big picture talk to specifically about plays and players and late game execution, coaching decisions. He handled that really well, along with continuing to be engaging. And I just incredibly impressed with, with Bob and his ability to adjust to this. And, you know, somebody told me uh, one of the reasons they're not surprised is that they, they said Bob Myers is good at everything. He was a great agent. Great GM. He was an excellent player. You know, the numbers at UCLA maybe weren't Walton-esque, but, you know, he's a really good player and in high school and, you know, really good as a studio guy with a countdown and really good as a game analyst. And some people are just like that. Whatever they do, does come natural to Bob. Kind of going off of that whole aspect of analysts who kind of come in, they're good at everything. Are there any people that are kind of running under the radar right now that you've either had a chance to work with or listen to who you see kind of having that same kind of potential, whether they're in the league or even just starting out in broadcasting? Um, you know, having a chance to work, you know, I did JJ Reddick's first handful of games two years ago, and it was pretty obvious, similar to Bob, that JJ was a natural, that he just had uh, a way about him, his pacing, his information, his content, his delivery, all of that was on point. And I think doing games is really hard. I think it's a hard transition because you have to be concise and it's, you know, reality television. It's, it's live. It's, it's not in a stale environment. It's, you know, people going crazy, things changing. And one of the first games I did with JJ, in fact, I think it was his first playoff game was a game in Atlanta when there was a bomb threat and, you know, kind of navigating that and handling that, um, you know, we got, we had to come on and kind of talk about that and talk that through. And so, you know, that was something different for him. You know, it's one thing as a player, you're back in the locker room, you probably don't even know what's going on. But when you're out there as a broadcaster and you have to deliver that information, it's entirely different. I feel the same way about Richard Jefferson. I think Richard um, has done a really good job of mixing his, you know, hilarious, engaging personality with, you know, great information and X's and O's. You know, I think he's gotten really good at that. Um, you know, and there's some other younger guys that have done some things, but I haven't really heard them yet on games. Obviously, we have a very deep analyst roster at ESPN, but, you know, those two guys clearly, uh, I, along with Bob, I think as long as they want to do this, they can, they can do it and do it at a high level. Well, why don't we go ahead and turn to the Bill Walton portion of the conversation? I know that anyone listening would, would want to uh, get into that topic. So anybody who knows Walton's career, knows that there was a very long period of time where he was a traditional TV analyst on NBC. He would do a little bit of shtick, but he was there with, with Steve Snapper Jones, kind of keeping him in check, Marv Albert. And it, until he started doing college, he was a traditional guy. And now, obviously, 
very non-traditional. I'm curious, when you first started working with him, did you have any inkling that he was going to be a bit more of an avant-garde type analyst than you were expecting? I grew up watching the NBA on NBC, so I had an idea what I was getting into watching Bill with Snapper Jones and Tom Hammond and Bill with Bob Costas. And my first games that I did with Bill were NBA games back in my first season, 2006. And I knew going in that it was going to be unique compared to what I was used to. Um, and, and obviously when we started, you know, the PAC 12 package, which I think the first year was, this is year 12 for us. So like I was 13, 2012, 2013, again, having done five or six games with Bill five years previous, I had an idea what I was getting into, but it, it did seem like it went to another level. And, you know, Bill, I've had a lot of Bill's former teammates tell me that, you know, Bill likes to feel like he's playing again. He likes to feel like he's back in the locker room, uh, that there's a rivalry, that um, that there is a an intensity and a preparation um, for a broadcast that's similar to playing. And I've noticed that, you know, he this, the sparring with me, I think he enjoys that because it makes him feel like he's playing again. Uh, watching him get ready for a game. He has a routine and you know, he gets up and he stretches and he's taking his energy chews and he's eating his protein bars. I mean, it's all the stuff he probably would do if he was getting ready to play. So uh, I, I, it's a long answer to question, but I, I think there is a, a level of competition in the back of his mind is how he sees it. You know, I think when we're on the air, he's mentioned this before, he kind of views me as Kareem. I'm his adversary on the air. I'm his teammate, but in, in a way, I'm 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 getting in the way of him accomplishing his goal, kind of like Kareem on the floor. And then off the air, when the game's over, um, we're great, you know, friends. But for that two hours or whatever it is, there is a level of competition as he views it that uh, is probably similar to how he viewed when he squared off against Kareem as a player. And it's funny because I remember during COVID, I was texting back and forth with Bob Costas. I already mentioned that. You know, watching Bob and Bill growing up along with Bill Snapper and Tom Hammond. And Bob said, go watch the Open from Game 7 of the conference finals between the Lakers and the Sacramento Kings. So I go back and I watch it, and it's Bill in a constructive, professional way, but still with a, a twist of Bill thrown in there, taking Shaq to task. It was the MVP. The Lakers had yet to win a championship. And it was great television. It was great information. And again, coming from a, a Hall of Famer, it carried a lot of weight. Bob, this is about Shaq and Shaq alone. It's not about strategy. It's not about plays. This is about being the MVP. And how does the MVP allow himself to be denied by an aging injury hobbled Sabonis? Where's the youthful athleticism for Shaq? Where are the transition baskets and the lobs? With Portland's swarming defense, they force the Lakers into a stagnant half-court offense. But when Shaq plays with force, quickness, and determination, there is absolutely no stopping him able to deliver thunderous dunks. But this series numbers for Shaq show some disturbing trends. Only three field goal attempts total in the fourth quarter of the last two games. Only seven blocks in the last five games after blocking five in game one all by himself. 
and then free throw line. He made 15 free throws in the middle of the series. Since then, though, he's missed 12 of his last 22. Now, in just one season with Phil Jackson, Shaquille O'Neal has made as much progress as any player in that short a period of time in NBA history. But Shaq, he has a disconcerting playoff history of not getting it done when things get really tough. Shaq doesn't do it today. Everything he's accomplished this year goes up in smoke. That's what the MVP is all about. Bill Walton calling Shaquille O'Neal out as Game 7 approaches. A Game 7 usually provokes a lot of... You know, you don't hear a lot of that today. You don't hear a lot of great players or MVPs getting challenged like that um, in an open. That was just terrific. And, you know, I think, Bill, I think sometimes just analyzing the game, it's too easy for him. It's the layup. So there has to be a twist, storytelling, comparisons, whether it's comparing a player to uh, a great artist or uh, telling the story of, you know, a coach and his family. I mean, he, he, he enjoys all that as much as he enjoys, if not more, the X's and the O's of a basketball game. You know, clearly, uh, you know, you must be doing something right if they've kept you partnered with Bill for so long, Dave. Like, what is some of the feedback maybe that your bosses at ESPN have given you about this specific team? We don't get a ton of feedback. Um, you know, I think usually when something doesn't go well, you hear about it. You, you might get a note, hey, let's not do that again. <laughs> or, um, you know, occasionally you'll get a note like that was funny or really enjoyed that. Um, I remember when Sean Miller was suspended. It was a game at Oregon and DeAndre Ayton's name had been floated out uh, by the media as uh, somebody who um, had taken an extra benefit. I think he and his mom and Sean Miller was suspended for the game. And we got a note before the game like, hey, no shenanigans today. Uh, and we kind of knew already, like, obviously, it's a little different here. It's, you know, you're dealing with some sensitive subjects, and it's, you know, a very, very heavy news day and game. And so we adjusted appropriately. Um, but the warning was good. It wasn't even a warning. It was just more advice, like, hey, guys, let's let's tone it down today, make sure we're focused on on the game and the news. But, you know, we don't traditionally get a, a ton of feedback. And I, I think in general, that's probably how sports television works. You usually don't hear much unless you're doing something wrong. Uh, so if the phone's not ringing and your bosses aren't texting or calling, for the most part, I think that's probably a good thing. So can we expect you and Bill to get together again in Maui this year? Is that going to be your first assignment with him? No. So, you know, I've only done Maui with him once, and that oh, was because okay. the Cardinals happened to be off, and I could get there from my college football game on a Saturday night. But And so I can't this year the way the schedule works out. But we'll we'll have a game in December together. I think it's the end of December. We have a game and then obviously some in, in January, February and March. But you know, I know he's disappointed about what's happening with UCLA and with the Pac-12. You know, hopefully uh, this isn't the the last go around for, for us as a team, because I, I really do enjoy working with Bill and, and the challenge and just being around Bill and the friendship we have and the person that he is. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, that this will continue beyond this year. Kind of getting to, you know, the nature of your partnership, you're basically filling the snapper Jones role, you know, the, the sparring partner uh, with Bill. I suspect that 999 times out of a, a thousand, there's been no moment where any joking 
I guess I could say hostility was ever real. It's all just a put on. But has there ever been an occasion where Bill has maybe taken things a little bit too far for you and it was a little bit more of a genuine annoyance? <laughs> well, he's definitely taken it too far. Uh, whether it's, you know, I'm pretty hard to offend. So, uh, you know, it, it's never been something that like was a personal attack that really bothered me. I mean, there, there have been things he said and, and done. And I think early on, there were some things that, you know, definitely uh, for, I think a lot of viewers and listeners, probably, you know, some of them laughed, some of them didn't like it. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's part of, that's part of Bill. Um, you know, he's going to push the envelope uh, a little bit. You know, I think, you know, you can just kind of look at the, you probably can just Google Bill Walton and you'll, you'll find some stories of things that were said that, you know, maybe he, um, you know, second guessed after. You know, I think there's certainly times Bill says things that there's never, and I can tell you this, there's never any ill intent. Bill is never out to offend or hurt anybody's feelings. Bill is one of the kindest people I've, I've ever met. Well, I say it's about competition and, and really a game in his mind. It's it's not about, you know, hurting me um, or hurting somebody else. You know, he never means any harm, but he does like to push the envelope a little bit. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, I was going to actually shift the uh, conversation back towards Dave a little bit. Um, we're kind of in the heart of NFL season uh obviously it's been a bit of an up and down but mostly down year for the uh the Arizona Cardinals you mentioned that Kyler Murray being back has given you some hope uh you know this has been your longest running assignment Dave uh for your career so how is uh you know this season in particular gone with with the struggles and then I would like to also get into your partnership with uh Ron Wolfley well it, it's not fun to lose. Um, you know, I've 22 years with the organization, so it's, you know, almost half my life. And, you know, it's my one chance to be a part of a team. Obviously, all the other games I do are on, you know, I'm unbiased and I'm a, a bystander trying to deliver uh, an unbiased product to the audience. But, you know, when you're doing the games and you work for the team, you know, you're connected, you're invested. And so, when things aren't going well, it's, it, it does, it, it stings. And it was nice to have the Cardinals play well this past weekend and to see Kyler play as well as he did, because just like it gives hope to a fan, it gives hope to a broadcaster. I mean, we all want to be calling playoff games. We all want to be doing Super Bowls. I remember doing that Super Bowl like it was yesterday. And, and, you know, it's, it's a surreal assignment when you get into the playoffs and you get those huge games and so, yeah, I, I root for them to win. I want them to win. Um, I'm part of the organization. And you mentioned Ron Wolfley. You know, Wolf, even more than me, you know, Wolf played for the organization. So a uh, big reason, you know, why he is who he is is because of the Cardinals. Went to the Pro Bowl four times with the Cardinals and was, you know, has been a part of the broadcast team for two decades as well. And, you know, seeing how he wears his emotions and how connected he is to the team that, you know, there obviously he and I have a great friendship and a connection. So when you see it in the other person, you know that that person's feeling the same way you are when things go well and you're excited and jubilant. And then when things don't go well, how disappointed you are and how that hurts, um, you know, it hurts even more when you know that a guy like Wolf, how it really impacts him. 
Uh, and I think that's true with a lot of players and probably the way that, that he played the game. You know, I worked with Chris Spielman for a few years and, and Chris is a close friend. I think Chris is the same way and he played the same way. Like it, it football means a lot to, to Ron, to Wolf, to, to Chris Spielman and losing hurts a lot. Winning feels like you're on top of the world and losing hurts a lot. And yeah, I think the same with Bill. I mean, any of these guys, you know, it, it, it matters. It's a big deal. And so when you're doing a team and you're that close to it uh, and you watch a season like this where you knew going in it was going to be a struggle, but you hope that Kyler would come back and we are seeing a culture built and a foundation laid by a new regime, it is encouraging. But obviously, selfishly, you, you want the results quickly because you're, you're calling those games. And, and you're a part of it uh, for three hours every Sunday. Let me uh, kind of go off of that topic a little bit with the Super Bowl. You obviously, this is the pinnacle of every broadcaster's career, getting to do a Super Bowl. Uh, you've not gotten to do that nationally, although if you correct me if I'm wrong, you did a couple of WNBA finals back in the day. Obviously, it's not yeah. as as big an event, but it's still a championship event. When you get into that championship mold, I mean, what is that experience like calling it at the local level, like you did with the Cardinals or nationally as you did with the WNBA? Yeah, I did a couple WNBA finals, did uh, an NCAA international final four, the the second Florida championship and obviously done, uh, did, you know, Eastern conference finals for ESPN radio and, uh, you know, obviously uh, high-level bowl games and, and other NBA playoff games and Pac-12 championships. I mean, th those are what you live for. That's why you do this. That's why you, you get into the business to to do the best games. And I think we're all competitive. All of us is play-by-play announcers, and we all want the best games. So when you get those games, um, there is a, you know, there's an energy and intensity. Now, you have to do your best not to let that show when it's not supposed to. You know, you're, you're supposed to be on phased and unflappable when you're doing a game and uh, treat every game the same. But there's no question when you when you get those assignments, I think the biggest thing is kind of like a player, you don't know when you're going to get them again. You're only as good as your last broadcast. So you need to make you need to be at your best in those big games. You know, we called Bedlam, uh, which is probably going to be the last Bedlam a couple of weeks ago, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. And I remember Dusty Dvorak, who I think is incredibly talented. Uh, he and I doing that game kind of saying like, hey, we, we got to bring it today. Not that we you wouldn't every game, but like, you know, these are the, you know, in terms of the, the number of viewers you're going to have and the type of memories that are going to be there. Like you, you, you want to make sure you're at your best every week, of course, but especially in those games. And I think some of it is always the, you know, hey, this is we're blessed to do this. We're, this isn't a right. It's a it's a privilege to get those huge games and. You want to knock it out of the park for yourself, but also, again, to, to serve the viewer because that's our job is to make sure that you know, we're the conduit to them. We, we want them to feel our energy and excitement and passion and sense the level of importance with an assignment based on how we're handling it. I'll get you out of here on this. I want to know your thoughts. And this topic has played out, but it's, you had one of the most famous working from home calls, the Donchich Dagger. Uh, Dallas at Memphis. I want to know your thoughts on that call, whether it's one that you look back on as one of your best calls, because it's a fairly iconic play and, and call, or one because of the circumstances that you almost wish you had under normal circumstances. 
Well, of course you wish you have it under normal circumstances. It was odd to have that kind of a game and that kind of call. It take my headset off and it's dead silent. <laughs> I, mean, I think it was late at night too. So yeah. and my wife was probably asleep. The kids were asleep. And so uh, I'm in my office, you know, you take your headset off and you know, it's so different as opposed to when you're at an arena and you're feeding off that energy and you're on this high after you take the headset off because you just saw something spectacular and you're sharing that with an analyst that's right next to you and all these fans and the players and coaches that you can look at and see the uh, reaction that they have. But when you're sitting in your house, <laughs> there's, there's nobody next to you. There's no reaction. Um, that was such a weird time. It's very surreal. It's hard to believe that was you know, two, three years ago, I know we did some games into 2021 for, for NBA from the home. Um, I'm actually surprised you guys remember that. But, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. It was cool to be a part of. And certainly I wish that I would have been on site. But, uh, you know, that that's not that's not how the setup was. Um, but it was a very it's something I'll never forget just because, again, of kind of more the aftermath really than the call just. Uh, the, the lack of, it was you know, kind of a buzzkill <laughs> after you're on this great high and you take your headset off and it's just dead quiet in your house. It, where does that rank for you in terms of just, even without the circumstances, just the pure call, where does that rank for you in your career? I don't know, guys. I, I you know, I, I don't like to rank them because I, I don't know. Some people, you know, may, I may feel a call of a certain play. You know, I really like it or embrace it and somebody else may say ah, I thought it was okay or you know I've been told times like hey that was a great call and I was like really I didn't think I really nailed that so I don't know guys I mean I uh, it's just fun that's what you live for you live as a broadcaster for those great moments those end of game situations where uh, you, you get a, a miraculous shot and you hope that you're on it you hope you nail it you hope you don't screw it up <laughs> uh, for yourself but also for the people you're working with and for the audience uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it was it, it was fun to be a part of that. And, um, you know, again, one of my favorites, probably just because of what what happened after was, you know, the, being on site for Kemba Walker and the Big East tournament that year uh, and being a part of that game against Pitt and, you know, watching him to go uh, watching him then go on past that to to win the whole thing. And remembering that play, not necessarily the call, but, you know, that shot and how important it was for him and UConn. Um, and again, being there and being a part of it and remembering in a day game what the garden sounded like. You know, you remember those and, and, and those moments and memories stick with you as much as the actual call. All right. Hey, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. I would keep you longer, but I know you have to go uh, because I was going to bring up the Kyler Murray Hail Mary, that same COVID era which would have had to have been in a mostly empty stadium. Yeah, that was a fun one, too. That was a fun one. I can't. I, I, I think there were fans there for that one, if I remember. That, that was like, that was almost one that was very different from the others where I, I, I don't, I just didn't expect it. It was so shocking. Uh, I think I was so disappointed in the way the team played. As I said, a lot of times, you, you know, you get, so invested that you know you're you, you kind of get numb and I think I was just so frustrated with the way that day went when it happened I was in such shock so I can't remember if there was anybody in that stadium or if it was completely empty but that was that was a fun one
Yeah, and uh, hopefully some more fun calls to come. Maybe one tomorrow night with LeBron and company versus the Lakers. Again, Dave will be calling that game with Doc Rivers for ESPN. And many more games down the line uh, into the NBA playoffs, obviously with the Cardinals locally. And of course, with Bill Walton when that gets fired up later in the year. Thank you again, Dave. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. That was Dave Pash. Hope you enjoyed that. We have another guest coming up next week, Alex Faust. And uh, after that, we have Brian Curtis. And in December, we've got Tracy Wolfson of CBS. So a lot of guests to come. Hopefully, you will enjoy all of those. Before we go today, just wanted to shout out Dick Vitale. I know he's had a not a setback necessarily, but he'll need to wait a little bit longer before he comes back on the air this season. But he does say that he is completely cancer-free, which is wonderful to hear. He's been suffering so much over the past uh, couple of years, and everybody loves Dick Vitale, even if you don't necessarily enjoy his work all the time. I know a long time ago, I don't know if you're even old enough, uh, Drew, to, to remember this, Dickie V was a borderline controversial figure because not everybody liked his style. Whether you like his style or not, I think everybody understands he's a really good person and has done so many things to help people. So hopefully from here on, uh, it'll be smooth sailing for Dick Vitale. Honestly, encouraging to hear that he's cancer-free, uh, even if he is unable to you know, meet that honestly pretty ambitious date he set about a month ago of November 28th for uh, that Kentucky-Miami game. Um, it's just encouraging to hear that he does fully intend to be back in some capacity this season i'm sure i'll be tuning into whatever that first game is it's always fantastic to hear the energy and the love he brings for college basketball so um get well soon soon dickie v and before i go i will say you know we had dave patch talking about bill walton uh, jason benetti was a guest on richard deitch's podcast this week and apparently he said that being friends with bill walton is like being friends with the woods it's like being in nature with another human being so Bill Walton getting a lot of great shout outs this week. Hey, he must be great. You know, uh, and I'll tell you, Shaq, I don't think Shaq likes Bill Walton to this day. So, you know, Walton could have an acid tongue. He comes out with those, you know, he'll, he'll elbow you with criticism. Uh, that's what a lot of people don't real remember because he, you know, he hasn't done the NBA regularly in more than a decade, but he uh, was not shy when it came to the players, but apparently a really tremendous sweetheart, according to his partners. We, we could probably use more of that in sports broadcasting these days, uh, you know, not attacking the players on any personal level, but, you know, there's always criticisms to be had about right. performance on the court and on the field. So, um, you know, maybe a bit of a return to uh, the old times wouldn't be so bad. You do enough of that, they'll lay you off on a Friday morning like they did to Jeff Van Gundy. So got to be careful. That, that laying into the refs. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I was watching uh, something on League Pass. They're showing a bunch of highlights. And then one of the highlights, I guess Jeff Van Gundy was calling the game. So the highlight included Van Gundy complaining about something after the play. And it's just quintessential Jeff. I enjoyed it. I, I do suspect the league just wants, uh, you know, people to praise everything all the time. Maybe we'll be seeing Jeff Van Gundy with a a Netflix mic mic flag uh, in a year or two. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? All right, we'll be back here next week with guest Alex Faust and more sports media news. And next week, believe it or not, is Thanksgiving week. Times are really flying by. Uh, Drew mentioned this to me before, but uh, next week, 
when you have the Lions on Thanksgiving against the Packers, it'll be the Lions that are good and the Packers who are not. So that'll be a definite change of pace. Of course, the Commanders will be there. They're always no good. Although I guess somewhat respectable this year at four and six. But we can talk more about those Thanksgiving Day matchups next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.